Once again, we're in a situation where it kind of feels like the city is under pressure, under stress, and there's not a single cause of the of the stress. I mean, you can you can say that it's a coronavirus crisis, but but really it has many interlocking facets. You know, there's an economic crisis, there's a financial crisis, there's a coming fiscal crisis in which you know the city's tax receipts are likely to fall fall significantly. You've got a public safety crisis, which is you know interlocking with the crisis of of confidence in the fairness of law enforcement um, and, and racial tensions. And you have a you know overlaying it all, you have this sort of crisis of governance, this idea that the city is ungovernable and, and then in fact maybe America itself is ungovernable. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. This is month six for my family's COVID-19 sequestration in West Shokan, New York in the Catskill Mountains. The farmhouse is feeling like home more and more each day, and 17-month-old Jake and his new pup, Stella, have shown great interest in becoming farmhands. I'm counting on them both. Before I introduce my guest today, let me mention briefly what I've been reading. While I've started and am really enjoying These Truths, A History of the United States by Jill Lepore, I took a quick break to read The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis which gave me a better understanding of Donald Trump's failure to handle the ongoing global pandemic and his attempted siege of the U.S. Postal Service. In this pre-COVID-19 book, Lewis expresses concern about the potentially catastrophic impact of Trump's gutting of the federal agencies, and Lewis prophetically notes that, quote, some of the things any incoming president should worry about include a fast-moving pandemic. Wow. In his New York Times review of Lewis's book, Joe Klein wrote, Donald Trump either doesn't care about federal agencies or understand what they do, or doesn't like what he imagines he understands, and has sent minions intent on crippling their work. Lewis believes that essential government functions are under threat, and they apparently are. Before getting back to these truths, I also took a detour to read Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. I had previously read Wilkerson's masterpiece, The Warmth of Other Suns, which was recommended to me by my friend Melissa Hernandez of Renaissance Youth Center in the Bronx. The Warmth of Other Suns is the extraordinary account of the Great Migration the movement between 1915 and 1970 of more than six million African-Americans out of the South to cities across the Northeast, Midwest, and Western United States. In Caste, Wilkerson writes that a caste system is an artificial construction, a fixed and embedded ranking of human value that sets the presumed supremacy of one group against the presumed inferiority of other groups on the basis of ancestry, and often immutable traits, traits that would be neutral in the abstract, but are ascribed life and death meaning. Wilkerson's book contains heartbreaking stories of, and ties together, the African-American experience in the US, anti-Semitism under the Nuremberg laws in Nazi Germany, and the Indian caste system. Gut-wrenching, and at the same time, a phenomenal book. Now for today's discussion. 
My guest today is Andrew Rice. Andrew is a contributing editor at New York Magazine and was introduced to me by my old friend Kevin Ingram. Kevin has been on an interesting journey over the years, and his connection with Andrew led us here today. Andrew suggested we discuss a great book about New York City during a very eventful year, 1977. The book is Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning, 1977 Baseball, Politics, and the Battle for the Soul of a City by Jonathan Mahler. Carol and I were living in the city in 1977, and we lived through many of the experiences Mahler recounts. Reading it brought back lots of memories. Andrew, I'm so glad you chose this book. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you're welcome. Let's start by having you describe the book and especially why you chose it for our discussion. Well, I, I, there are a couple of reasons why I, I like this book. I mean, one of which is, um, although I was not uh, I was not a resident of New York in 1977. In fact, I was um, not a, I was hardly a resident of planet Earth at the time. I was going <laughs> to ask you not to mention um, not to mention your age. But go ahead. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think. Everyone who lives in New York, and and especially anyone who is a is a reporter in New York, as I uh, have been for many years, is kind of raised on the mythology of New York and those bad times, right? You know, 1977 is kind of thought of as sort of the the nadir of of the city, and uh, and you know, and in a way, kind of a a time in which it sort of seemed as if everything was coming apart um, in New York City at the time. And, and, and for a reporter, that well, for a society that's horrible for, for a reporter, especially if you come out the other end of it intact, um, you know, it, it, this becomes sort of, these are sort of like the war stories that old tabloid reporters would, would talk about, you know, um, when you would when you would talk with them. And I started my career at a, at a newspaper called the New York Observer, uh, circa around 2000. And in, in the mythology of 1977 and that time period in New York was, was really still very strong. And, you know, I... I became a, a real estate reporter, commercial real estate reporter, um, which is broader. I, I guess I'd say it, it wasn't as, as narrow as it might sound. It was really about writing about the real estate and power and politics in the city, which as anyone who knows about New York City knows that everything kind of flows through the you know property in a way. Um, and so uh, I learned a lot about 1977 and the fiscal crisis and um, the mayor's race of that year and so on at that time. Um, I think it's also an interesting book for a couple of other reasons. One is that we're still living with the legacy of it in a, of 1977 in New York in a way, in the sense that one of the major characters in this book is Mario Cuomo, who is sort of a relatively obscure figure um, when he when he ran for mayor in, in, in 1977 as a kind of uh, you know, long shot outsider candidate. And of course, as, as we all know, you know, there's still a Cuomo who's governor. I, 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 I haven't totaled it up lately, but, you know, I, I imagine we've had Cuomo's as governors for some significant percentage of the last 40 years in New York at this point. Um, so that is, uh, you know, on sort of a character level, that that's sort of interesting uh, in this book. Finally, I think that, you know, in the, and I think the real reason that I picked this is that, you know, I think that we're now going through something very similar uh, in New York at this time. Uh, 
And once again, we're in a situation where it kind of feels like the city is under pressure, under stress, and there's not a single cause of the of the stress. I mean, you can you can say that it's a coronavirus crisis, but but really, it has many interlocking facets. You know, there's an economic crisis, there's a financial crisis, there's a coming fiscal crisis in which you know the city's tax receipts are likely to fall fall significantly. You've got a public safety crisis, which is you know interlocking with the crisis of of confidence in the fairness of law enforcement um, and, and racial tensions. And you have a, you know, overlaying it all, you have this sort of crisis of governance, this idea that the city is ungovernable and, and then in fact, maybe America itself is ungovernable, you know, that, that, that really we have, we're, we're facing a situation in which it feels like kind of all sort of former constraints on what could potentially happen uh, politically, socially, economically, and you know, in the, in the realm of public safety, ha- have been released, and we, we don't really quite know where things are going. And I think that is very much how it felt to be in New York in 1977. I think you were there. You tell me. <laughs> well, so as I said, uh, Carol and I, uh, my wife Carol and I, experienced much of what uh, is detailed in the book and what, what went on during 1977. So, what the book talks about the democratic the democratic primary election, the Yankee season, we come back to. In so far as crises, the uh, Son of Sam, uh, the heat wave and blackout and the subsequent destruction and looting throughout the city, which was really catastrophic. Uh, we were living through the aftermath of the near bankruptcy of the city in 1975. And was it also catastrophic that Rupert Murdoch took over the New York Post? Perhaps. But the, well, it the, depends on your, how you feel about Murdoch. But. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's why I asked the question. And I, I'm assuming the answer. Uh, but then on top of that, um, we did have the Democratic primary election. And it's interesting having thought back on it. Um, so uh, Ed Koch became mayor that, mayor that year, but he ran against uh, the out-of-borough candidate Mario Cuomo. And uh, Bella Abzug, a very outspoken champion of liber- female liberation and so on. But also... She was sort of like the AOC of her time, right? She was very much the AOC of her time and also from the Bronx. Uh, so they had mm-hmm. a number of similarities. But yes, she was out, very outspoken. There are differences. But yes, very uh, the AOC of her time is, is a good summary. But also there was Herman Badillo and Percy Sutton. So two persons of color uh, who dropped out of the race at uh, one point or another. Uh, and uh, But there was a, there was a lot of um, upheaval that year. And Koch was really, you mentioned Cuomo was an unknown. Uh, Koch was very much an unknown, uh, but became uh, the mayor for many years. Uh, this year, there will be, um, go, going into this year next, a mayoral election, and there will be similar uncertainties. Uh, I expect there will be candidates who we don't know of today or are not known citywide. Do you have a view on the mayoral election coming up? Well, I mean, I think that the the, the consensus seemed to be um, going into this, as I understand it, that, you know, the, sort of the political chattering classes thought that, you know, the core Johnson's to lose. Uh, and I think that's I think that's changed. You know, um, there's really been a kind of um, a feeling that the city needs new new leadership and that there's a there's this kind of real crisis of leadership i mean i think it's fair to say that 
a lot of people are, you know, feeling that the the current mayor, Mayor De Blasio, is you know not not leading, um, or certainly not leading in a in a direction that the many people in the city um, think is a, an effective one, and. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a kind of sense that no one has sort of stepped forward to kind of uh, take the initiative and become the candidate of this moment on, on that level. But I think you I think it's a good point that you that you made, which is that no one foresaw Ed Koch being that candidate either. I mean, Ed Koch now kind of I think is, he his subsequent career and especially sort of the, the corruption scandals of his third term and sort of how he became a bit of a, of a joke figure in his post-mayoralty overshadow the fact that it, you know, the effectiveness that he showed in, uh, in the early part of his tenure as mayor. You know, history will say that he was sort of the right, the right person at the right time for that for that position for what the city needed. And, and maybe there's a maybe maybe it's it's the case that, that in a way that when the city needs something it, it, it often finds it, you know, you finds Fiorello LaGuardia at the outset of the of the Great Depression, you know, and, and it and it finds Ed Koch at the at the depths of this crisis in nineteen seventy seven. I mean again, both both of them are in their own ways very controversial figures, but you know, I think I think it's fair to say that both Giuliani and Bloomberg uh, during their tenures um served purposes and 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 were were in certain ways the right people for for the for the big crises that they were facing and in Giuliani's case that the, the city had gone once again and become sort of ungovernable uh during the during the late nineteen eighties and, and Bloomberg after two thousand one, the sense that the city's status as the as the center of the financial universe and so on had been had been um shaken by the by the September eleventh attacks. And I think, you know, both of them uh, you know, say what you will about about both of them, but I think that they both successfully navigated those particular challenges. So, so yeah, so maybe maybe we'll get lucky. <laughs> and, um, you know, I I I remain I hopeful and optimistic. Um, but it's a tough. This is a tough one because I mean, I was recently reading another book about the city in 1977, actually, as it happens, because of a. A story I'm I'm working on for New York Magazine about the about the coronavirus crisis and the crisis in real estate uh, in New York City as a result of it. And there is this book is by Ken Oletta. It's called The Streets Are Paved with Gold. And and it and that one's interesting because it's written sort of from the per, written in 1977 about that time period. And it points out that in 1977, you know. Uh, the Bronx was burning, but but Manhattan real estate values actually rose 30% that year. Um, plenty of Fortune 500 companies were still there. Studio 54 opened, as you'll, any mm-hmm. re, as, you know, that's a chapter in Mahler's book. You know, the Yankees won the World Series. Not to spoil the ending to, for anyone who <laughs> who, who, uh, who hasn't read the book yet, but you know, the the, the Yankees they drew two million fans. You know, with the attendance for the New York Yankees this year is going to be zero. Right. You know, the number of nightclubs opening in Manhattan this year will be zero. You know, the the real estate values in in New York, it's hard to say what's going to happen to them, but they're falling precipitously um, to the degree that there's really any deal activity going on. Um, we are facing a kind of economic cataclysm that, that, that is unprecedented. It's of, of a categorically different sort than anything anyone has seen before and i think it's going it's going to be hard to predict uh going into the future where things are going to land for the city well that that, that's certainly the case 
And you mentioned Ken Oletta. I mentioned uh, Rupert Murdoch. A good part of the book, at least that drew my attention, was devoted to the newspapers of the times uh, of, of, of that era, the, the New York Post, the Daily News in particular, uh, and some of my favorites from then, Jimmy Bresland, and of course, uh, the great, the recently late, great Pete Hamill. Do you have, not recollections, but have you read about these, uh, what I'll refer to as titans of the uh, of the oh, print yeah, age. I mean, these are the guys, these are the guys who, you know, that, uh, I mean, mostly guys, I guess, in that era, but, you know, that the individuals who were, were the giants, you know, when I, when I was starting out in, in New York journals, I mean, Breslin was still around and still writing in, in 2000. I mean, actually he kind of kicked around for years after that, but, um, Hamill was, was certainly still very much around, you know, guy, uh, individual, Murray Kempton, and others, I I thought you know the interesting thing about about Rupert Murdoch is you know, and, and maybe it's maybe it's too maybe it's too difficult to um, to disaggregate the, the 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 toxicity of his politics from the um, captivating part of his persona, but 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 I but it is important to note that like Rupert Murdoch was very much a believer in. And I guess he's still alive, but but you know during the time when he was during this time period was very much a, a believer in newspapers, believer in sort of aggressive journalism, aggressive tabloid journalism. He was a he he believed in muckraking and 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 kind of having a using his his newspapers as a kind of political cudgel. And uh, I think it's hard for um, you know as a journalist. There's something that is endearing about him, uh, if only because he had ambitions for for journalism and for newspapers that I think, you know, certainly the current ownership of, of, you know, the city's tabloids, I mean, the Daily News is a shell of what it once was. I think it's fair to say the Post, too, is basically kind of running on fumes and has not as, as a shadow of the influence it once did, although still still relatively influential. You know, this Newsday, which was a which was a tabloid that sure. that was was very prevalent, was very strong in the city when I first moved to the city, has completely retreated and is you know it's it basically kind of a local community newspaper for Long Island now. So this was sort of a heyday of the press, and Murdoch was very much a kind of a throwback to the era of like big charismatic uh, media proprietors, and I mean you know. The, the HBO show Succession is based on him, right? And the reason people love to watch it is because there's, because he's such a, he, he's an evil guy, but like, you know, he's got, he's got a lot of, you know, it's, a, it's he's fun to watch, you know, and there's a lot of interesting stuff that swirls around him. So there's, a, you know, clearly he's had some negative impacts on, on our society and uh, on the city, but there's something in the same way that there's a, there's something about you know, William Randolph Hearst and, and others, um, you know, of that ilk. There's something about the kind of the ambition and the and the and the willingness to kind of be interesting um, that is hard to look away from. Oh, absolutely. Well, there were a lot of interesting personalities in and out of um, the newspaper trade. And uh, in the newspaper trade, uh, Mala refers to Jimmy Breslin as a stumpy, rumpled caricature of a newspaperman, uh, which, which, <laughs> which feels right. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that, that, that sounds fair. And uh, he referred to Pete Hamill 
as a true newspaper romantic, and I think that's fair as well. And on, on the question of um, aggressiveness, there's a uh, quote in the book about um, Billy Martin uh, sitting at a banquet with uh, Ty Cobb. Let's see, sitting next to Ty Cobb at a banquet in San Francisco, Billy Martin, who was then, as you well know, a manager of the Yankees, uh, told the deceptive old-timer that if he had, he had played during his era, Cobb, who was notorious for sliding into uh, a base with his uh, spikes up, Martin says Cobb would have come sliding into second, spikes high on him only once. After that, you would not have had any teeth. So uh, <laughs> there, was an, there was an aggressiveness and an outspoken and a, a large personality uh, part of that era that, well, and I think that's what made this book fascinating. I mean, just the, the, the dynamic between, and we we had, we had you know, the part that the, I think, I know Jonathan Mahler a little bit. I've subsequently kind of come to come to know him after reading this book. And I, this book started, I know, as a New York Yankees book about <laughs> New York Yankees in 1977. And, and it only gradually evolved into being more about the city in 1977. And, you know, I think that it's very much a, a baseball book as, in addition to being a politics book. Uh, I like baseball, so, so I'm good with that. Um, and I think that, gosh, that, you know, you talk about just a, uh, an amazing collection of, of personalities. you got Reggie Jackson, you know, just an absolute kind of a, a man who was just made to be uh, written about. You know, and and and, um, and a person also. I mean, I think this is what makes him interesting to Mahler. But you know, very much a, a person who you know you can tell a story about race through as, as well. Um, Billy Martin, you know, tortured kind of uh, old cuss. You know, like is is a is an interesting kind of antagonist to to him. Uh, and then you got Steinbrenner. Uh, <laughs> sort of presiding over all it all, and he himself is also just a you know a kind of outsized New York character. So it's a great, it's a fascinating story, and really like um, you know, really I think he made an he had an interesting insight in figuring out that somehow this team was representative of the turmoil that was happening within within the city in this time but also i mean i think i should point out that like this is not an uh, this is not a pessimistic book i mean the, the good thing about writing this sort of history is that you know as the reader that new york comes out okay you know the the, the, the pessimist ends up being the ones who are uh, the optimists are vindicated ultimately in the end, you know, and the, and the, and the good guys win. Now I'm not a Yankees fan, so I don't define the Yankees winning the world series as the good guys winning, but like, but nonetheless, I think within the context of this book, like that, <laughs> their, their victory in the world series, you know, provides a, provides a, um, you know, an, an important kind of punctuation mark to the, to this, to this. And I mean, I think that the other thing that I, that I really like about this and part of the reason why I got to know Mahler when I was doing this, I'm, I'm writing it, as you know, I'm writing a, a book myself that kind of in a way is modeled on this. And the thing that I like about this book also is that the story of the baseball team is not divorced from the story of the politics. It's not a whole, it's not just what, this isn't just a series of vignettes about different things that were all happening in New York in 1977. You know, there's parts about Reggie Jackson going to Studio 54, going out to the going out to the to the nightclubs, you know, that are part of the context of the of the um, his discussion of Studio 54. There's 
you know, um, the riots and the and the public safety problems in, in some ways, you know, the most the, the title of the book comes from a, a famous incident where, you know, there's a there's a there's a baseball game being called by Howard Cosell. And, you know, meanwhile, there's there's arson going on in, in, the, in the Bronx. And, you know, he, he, he looks out. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but, you know, there, I believe that there's a, uh, you know, blimp shot or something like that pans to the right. to the to the Bronx, and he says, "Ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning." And uh, it, you know, it's a baseball moment, but also it's a moment in the life of the city and a moment in the life of this urban society that is, became iconic. And I think, um, I think, I think what he's really good at doing is sort of showing how all these things were in conversation with each other. You know, the the the, the, the post, the politics, the post. You know, the post is not just a force in politics, but it's also a force in covering the covering the. Uh, the Yankees and Steinbrenner's relationship with the Post and the and the and the beat writers' relationship with Reggie and Billy Martin. All this stuff is shows how how much it's part. Of, the the city is a unified whole, and it's not just that the city is not just about politics and not just about who's mayor, but it's about it's about all these other things that that he writes about. I, I love the way you put it. There, all these events, which on their own could be and probably have been uh, subjects of uh, books are in conversation with each other. The When Howard Cosell made his statement about the Bronx is burning, it was just a couple of, a day or a couple of days after uh, President Jimmy Carter visited uh, Charlotte Street in the Bronx, uh, which had been burned out. And even the Bronx, to some extent, pre-COVID, uh, had begun to make a comeback. But I think you're right. Yeah. At the end of the day, for those of us who are New Yorkers and root for New York, uh, it's not it's not all bad. Um, but the fact that all these events are in conversation with each other is very instructive. I think we can think about today's situation in the same way as it relates to politics, uh, urban affairs, journalism, and, and perhaps the Yankees. Uh, and I'm a Yankee fan, so I did feel good about uh, the Yankees winning the World Series. <laughs> Especially against the Dodgers. So tell, tell us more about the book you're writing. Oh, um, so the book that I'm writing is, a, I'm calling it a popular history of the year 2000 in the state of Florida. So it's essentially sort of a similar book structurally to, to the ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. And it tells a number of different intertwined stories. But the stories are stories, all of which are, are set in Florida in this one year. Um, so in my case, the, the, the stories are, you know, the most obvious one, of course, being the Bush v. Gore election controversy, which uh, I now, I, I'm finding actually that I now have to sometimes explain to younger people that uh, what happened there, that, 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 <laughs> that, that, that George W. Bush only won election by the, the narrowest possible margin, 537 votes. And of course, that, that number actually, is very it was, contested. It was actually one vote in the Supreme Court, but go ahead. <laughs> right. Um, it, 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 and, and, um, you know, so this was this, because the most, at that time considered to be the the most sort of wild and probable, uh, electoral outcome you possibly could have imagined. And, you know, we, we've had some other wild and improbable ones since then, unfortunately. So, uh, so, so maybe it doesn't have that, um, title anymore. But what it does have is, I think, a, a real kind of historical importance because by the narrowest possible margin, the, George W. Bush became the the president of the United States without a without a majority in the in the popular vote. Um, that's another similarity between him and the current sure. president. 
while at the same time, another thing that was happening in Florida was that the, the, the people planning the 9-11 plot, the pilots of the planes, were actually in Florida at the time, training at the at flight centers. Actually, in some cases, you know, in the same place at the same time as the as the political candidate. And they were they were here for quite some time. They were here for 18 months before the attack. So they had lives here. They, they um, you know, they had very normal kinds of lives here. But part of what I'm writing about is their existence when they were living in uh, on the Gulf Coast of Florida. Another thing that happened in the year 2000 is that uh, Donald Trump ran for the presidency um, as a candidate of the Reform Party. Um, and nobody remembers this now because it was kind of treated like a joke. He went on, you know, he was on the cover of magazines. He went on all the late night talk shows. He, he went on Howard Stern uh, with Melania and gave this very lewd kind of interview to Howard Stern that was sort of it became infamous. But really, it was kind of uh, all considered to be sort of a sideshow. Like people, people thought the idea that Donald Trump would ever dream of being president was kind of a, a big joke. And um, and part of the reason why it remained a big joke, I think, was that he, he really had no political ideology whatsoever. He was it was a it was a campaign devoid of any ideas, only beyond kind of vote for me, I'm famous. But he was running against a guy and ultimately defeated by a guy named Pat Buchanan, who had a political ideology, and that ideology actually was almost identical to the one that um, Donald Trump subsequently ran on and won with. So, so you can really trace the origins of Trump's kind of populist uh, ideology, race race baiting ideology, back to that. Another thing that happened in that year is um, there's a, a controversy uh, over a young boy named Elian Gonzalez, uh, who uh, was a Cuban kid who washed up in, on an inner tube in Florida and uh, in Miami, and as you certainly recall, but sure. many people who were not adults at that time. Yeah, this is a really a forgotten episode in many ways. This became a kind of transfixing media event that there was a, this custody battle over this child that ultimately co- culminated in a in a raid ordered by Janet Reno, who was herself she was attorney general, but she was herself formerly the lifelong resident of Miami. So, so somebody who had a, a real stake in that community, and many people think, and I think it's pretty incontestably true, since an election was separated by 537 votes. You know, lot, the outcome can be attributed to a lot of causal factors, but but the, the, the way that the, that controversy was handled and the way it enraged the Cuban community in Florida really ended up being determinative in the election. And then the final strand in it um, is the one that we uh, originally met and talked about, which is a, about your friend uh, Kevin Ingram, who is a former Goldman Sachs and uh, Deutsche Bank investment banker who I guess it's fair to say ran into a little bit of trouble in, in Florida during that year. And, and um, there's this whole kind of crazy, you know, uh, arms dealing and money laundering, you know, uh, case that uh, involves the Pakistani ISI and all sorts of other, you know, folks. Um, and uh, that's sort of the most obscure, but in a way, most kind of fascinating tale in the, in the whole book as far as I'm concerned. And, and you know, Kevin interacts with many of these characters in various different forms and fashions uh, throughout his life and career. And do all of these events, uh, are they in conversation with each other, as you suggested, the events in New York? And well, I'm trying to make them... <laughs> <laughs> the challenge in the book, really, I mean, I, I'm in the midst of writing it right now. So that's really the that's the pickle, right? You know, that's the real the real challenge. And it isn't finding the interesting 
facet of each of these stories because they are each independently uh, fascinating in one way or another. But trying to figure out how to make them kind of talk with each other is uh, is important. I think that they do. I mean, I, one of the ways that, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of ways in which the you can see the roots of um, of today in these events. So, for instance, you know, as I mentioned, one in one way, Donald Trump, you know, running for for uh, sure. presidency and and not really having an ideology. You know, this is where he got his ideology from. You know, in, in another way, the the Elian Gonzalez scandal, and it was much noted at the time. The Elian Gonzalez controversy was this kind of like 24-hour news event, which uh, dominated all the cable news channels in a way that was unusual. These cable news channels were were really kind of only just coming into, you know, sort of being in the way that they, this is sort of still a little pre-internet. I mean, the internet was around, but it wasn't as, as omnipresent a force in everyone's life as it is now. So what I'm getting around to is that, you know, the, the, the thing that the Elian Gonzalez coverage resembled, um, as many people noted contemporaneously, was, a, you know, this new phenomenon called reality television, which is just starting that year. It's the year that Survivor was first came out. So um, so in a way that the way that Elian Gonzalez was, was covered and the way that these reality shows, the kind of like uh, genre that was created, this idea that the Americans would entertain themselves by sort of following the minute details of of, uh, of 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 these regular people's lives as they are in competition or fighting with each other. You know, very much becomes sort of part of our popular culture, and then of course gives us ends up giving us our president. So that's that's sort of an example of how, I guess how some of these different stories are are yeah. in conversation with one so, another. So and then just small things like you know Muhammad Atta and Marwan Al Shahi, the, the the pilots of the two planes that hit the World Trade Center, you know were were physically present at or uh, at this flight school where where Gore held a rally in Sarasota, uh, right you know right before prepared for the debate with George W. Bush. You know these are things where you don't think about these individuals who ended up having this very consequential, you know, obviously horrible, but but enormously historical consequential effect on the on the future course of the world. You don't really think of them being in America, right? You only right. you really think about them. You think about them as being the authors of this act, but you don't think about the prior eighteen months has kind of been obscured. The time that they spent here in America has kind of been obscured. And actually, the the true history of the nine eleven plot. And I don't mean that in a way that like in a truther way, but the there's the the nine eleven plot. There's actually a lot of it that I think has been forgotten, obscured, not properly understood. You know, uh, over time, I think the degree to which the um, the role of the purported masterminds of it, Osama bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, has been sort of overemphasized in history, and the role of the actual perpetrators has been underemphasized. Which is to say, they had very little contact with the with with Al Qaeda after they showed up in America. They they really did not communicate much with Pakistan or or. Afghanistan, the people who the people who really plotted and pulled off the 9/11 attacks were not the individuals who were sitting in camps, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. They were the people who died uh, that day in perpetrating the attack. And I think that that's one reason why it's interesting to to understand who they were. Absolutely. So two other connections 
to the present day. Uh, you mentioned Elian Gonzalez and uh, the potential impact the controversy had on the vote that year. Similarly, today, Cuban Americans in Florida may, in fact, determine the next president of the United States because Florida, again, as usual, is so pivotal. And secondly, you know, Bush v. Gore and the controversy over the count may be something we're facing, not in one state, but in multiple states on November 3 this year. So uh, that will be interesting. It may well be. I mean, I think I think Florida is going to be a really close state again, it looks like. And and um, yes, I think I think you're absolutely right that the I think the Democrat, ironically, the the, the Biden's probably Biden's closest advisor is a guy named Ron Klain, um, who who was the person who ran the recount operation for Al Gore. So whether that gives you confidence or not in, <laughs> right. in the Biden campaign, I don't know. He, but has, like, he has experience. Uh, yeah, he, he, he didn't. He has been down this road before. Yeah. So if you want a guy, if you want a guy who knows who knows exactly how how bare knuckled the Republicans can be uh, when they're when they're fighting for something like this. Ron Klain's been on the receiving end of one of those uh, one of those uh, beatings. So um, so yeah, I think I think you know Biden's got a good good uh, a good consigliere there. Absolutely. So you're obviously busy with your book. You're busy with work. You're busy with COVID nineteen at at home and and for work. Are you read? Do you have any time to read? Are you reading anything? Or if you had a wish list, what would be on it? Oh my goodness! Well, no. I'm the, the, the honest answer to that question is like I, I have an eight year old son, so to the degree that I'm reading anything, I'm reading. I'm trying to read him books, you know, to try to good, to, to good, try good, to good. educate him. The uh, we're, we actually at the beginning of the lockdown before right, about the day or two before the the library here in Montclair where I live shut down. I went and checked out uh, thirty graphic novel versions of. Um, of classic books like Around the World in 80 Days. That's and, great. Um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Huck Finn and books like that. So we spent actually the, the, the months of lockdown reading those together. They're, they weren't the original version, so, you know, not the not the original language, which, you know, it, it's so it's more simplified. Uh, and oftentimes they'll, they'll be sort of picture, picture, uh, sort of comic book like, mm-hmm. although they're graphic novels. So they're, they're not like, con- they're not thin comic books. They're, they're you know, a hundred pages yeah. long or something. But we, so we read all those together and I, you know, some of those stories I had never even read in any form before. And some of those stories I, I had, hadn't read since I was a child myself. So I really got a chance to rediscover many of those. So if we ever get, if I ever manage to get any more time from the away from his five hours of Zoom calls a day, which is what they're doing now here, uh, I think we're going to start uh, Howard Pyle's King Arthur uh, and uh, and and do those Arthurian legends. Now, for work, which I am doing for New York Magazine or supposedly doing for New York Magazine, although you know uh, <laughs> uh, my productivity has taken a big hit in the last week since school restarted. I am reading right now a book called The Permanent Government. It's a book by Jack Newfield, who is one of those legendary oh, journalists absolutely. mentioned in the 1977 book. And it's a, it's a book about the financial crisis in New York in 1977. It's related to something I'm working on for, for New York Magazine. And it's got sort of an out of print book. I just love the title, and I, I'm I'm going to use it. I think in the you know this idea that there's like a a kind of like a, a sort of permanent elite of New York that uh, that runs the city 
you know, sort of uh, regardless of who happens to be elected to to uh, the city council or the mayoralty or what have you, and that there's this group of folks that you know that that kind of are are the are the permanent government. Um, but I don't actually think that the. I mean, Jack Newfield thinks that the permanent government was a bad thing. Um, so, so he's a polemicist for sure. I, I'm not completely convinced that the. I, I'm not convinced that the permanent government is a bad thing. I think sometimes the stakeholders, you know, who are who are there for you know decades or generations, in the case of some of these big, you know, for for instance, property owners and real estate developers who are a big part of this. Yeah, they 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 have a big they have a big interest in seeing that the city succeed and survive and thrive. So part of what my story is about is this tension that's being fought right now in the city between the forces of what you might call the permanent government, the CEOs, the developers, the sort of Bloomberg administration veterans, the sure. the government kind of uh, the Dan Doctoroffs of the world, right? right? And then this new rising force of progressive politics that. Uh, seems to have a lot of the momentum in the city. So, AOC, of course, is the is the is the sort of the on the vanguard of that. But there are a whole bunch of people coming behind her um, that that are they just want a whole bunch of state assembly seats. They're going to really, I think, have a very strong influence on the city count on the next city council, and and may in fact end up determining who the next mayor is. So. That's a really interesting tension, and and that's why I'm reading that book so that I can because I you know I'm a strong believer in the idea that there are no new stories there there are just new characters <laughs> and there are a lot of characters. So final question about a bookstore. I don't know if you're a bookstore fan in New York or New Jersey, but do you have particularly favorite bookstores? Well, I have a couple favorite. I mean, the Strand obviously is sure. is, is um, someplace that I've I've often gone, and I just love the kind of opportunity for discovery that you can have in those stacks there. But my local, I, I, I need to, I should put in a plug for my local bookstore, which is excellent. It's called Wachung Booksellers. And it's here in Montclair, New Jersey. We're lucky in this town that we, we're like sort of a little oasis of, of urbanity, I guess you'd say, and, and here in, um, in Northern New Jersey. And we have a little independent bookstore that has a great selection of books and they have authors in to do readings. And, um, and it's a really great little, little spot. So, um, if you're if you're in this neighborhood anytime, I would I would suggest dropping in and just sort of seeing what they got and and um, and they've got a nice little restaurant attached to them too. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a cute little it's a cute little spot right next to the train station. That's great, Andrew. This has been terrific. Thank you very much. Howard, thanks so much, and I, I really appreciate you you doing this. And as you can tell, I, I love talking about books, so um, so it's, it's nice to have an opportunity to do it with somebody as, uh, who seems. I, I I have to say, I'm very I'm in awe of, of your report on your recent reading. I wish <laughs> I only wish I could I I had that much bandwidth at the moment. Well, I, I must say this: so the bandwidth is one thing generally, but what I find when I talk to so many people is the fact that I no longer have young children makes a huge oh, yeah. difference. Because I, too, read with my children, but my children are in their 30s and 40s. And we read together, but it's very different. So that that opens up a lot of time. I suppose that's something to look forward to. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. We'll talk again sometime. Thank you very much. Follow us on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com, on Instagram and Twitter at bookwormsitw, and on Facebook at Bookworms in the Wild. And message me to tell me what you're reading or email me at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. 
More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and much support. And of course, Carol is my muse. Little Jake, now 17 months old, continues to provide enthusiastic and emotional support for the podcast and for all of us as well. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests, although not today. Today's guest was introduced to me by my friend Kevin Ingram. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And thanks as well to AJ Falari, who is working on the editing with me. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.